Welcome to this week's edition of the Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd Middleinition C. Walker. Yes, that's right. It is me, and we are doing a flashback to the 1980s to a group by the name of Strut from their album Unlimited, Unlimited, I can't even say that today, Unlimited Access, and is a hair band, actually, a very popular one out of the Northeast United States. And the fellow playing bass guitar on that, and I think maybe some background vocals, I'm not exactly sure, but we're going to find out, is one of my best local friends and one of my favorite musicians, Kevin Del Molino, who's on the telephone right now. Hi, Kevin. How are you doing, Todd? I'm doing well. I had a little trouble with Unlimited. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. It was a long time ago. Oh, gosh. Now, when was that actually recorded? Let's see. We recorded in 1987. 
It came out for worldwide distribution in 88. So, yeah, it was re- I guess it was released late of 87, early 88. Now, was I correct in, in titling you a hairband? Well, I guess at the time we, when we were making the record, we had decided that we wanted an album that wasn't, you know, kind of stuck in the 80s. But uh, when I listen to it now, it's, uh, it's, it's firmly rooted there by, by all stretch. So, yes, I guess we were uh, definitely an 80s hair metal band. Now, from what you've told me in the past, you were a very popular band, at least in the Northeast. We, we had um, success all over the U.S. We had uh, kind of in pockets. Um, we, had, uh, we were real big in Boston, Los Angeles, um, some spots across the Midwest, upper Midwest. Uh, we were really big over in Europe, which is, which is kind of ironic. Um, but they really liked that style of music. And uh, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty fun time. Now, you are playing bass. I am playing bass. I do uh, all of the harmonies, and, um, and I wrote that song. Okay. Now, did you write lots of songs for the band, or was that like a one-off? No. Uh, we used to, mostly we co-wrote um, songs. Somebody would come up with an idea, and then it would kind of just uh, kind of blossom out of that. But this was the first song that I wrote uh, completely by myself brought it to the band and um, with other, just a few minor tweaks and, and everybody kind of bringing their, their flavor to it. It was pretty much all mine. Now the song leads in with an acoustic 12 string guitar and then yes. it follows up about three quarters, well, two thirds, three quarters of the way through right about the time I dropped the volume going into an electric lead. Was that the same player for both? Yes. We had one guitar player um, for the, you know, that was part of the band. We were basically what we consider a power trio with a singer. So it was bass, drums, guitar, and a singer. And, uh, but in the studio, it was multi-layered, uh, 12 string, six string. And then, um, and then of course he played electric uh, as the song goes on. Um, but live, he would pretty much just kind of do it all through just the one instrument. Now, how did you get involved with a band back at that point in time? How did you start out musically? Oh my gosh. Um, I was born into it. I don't think I really had a choice. Um, my mom and dad were both semi-professional singers. Um, my mom had, um, international success in, in singing acapella and she kind of sang all over the world. Um, at one point she was, um, the house kind of group, so to speak for the, uh, VFW. So they sang all over the world for the VFW and the rehearsal studio was in my basement. So I was literally born into music. And so we were always singing around the house. Um, no one played an instrument. They just were all, they all just sang. And so I don't really have a choice. And then I remember, you know, probably mid to late, late sixties. Um, my mom and dad had, you know, music was not always in the house. And I remember them playing, um, this album by the Beatles called introducing the Beatles, which I still have. And I just couldn't, stop playing it. And I would pretend to play guitar and I pretend to sing to it at three and four years old. And I just, I just couldn't, couldn't stop myself. And the more that my mom sang, the more I wanted to do it. And I just never looked back. Now, which one of the Beatles were you at that age? I think I was always Paul McCartney. I just loved his melodicism. Um, I didn't kind of know it then, but he kind of had a very, um, very melodic voice. I didn't know he was a bass player at the time, um, but I always gravitated towards towards him. I always thought John Lennon, to a you know a three and four year old, that his voice was a little little harsher to me. Um, and of course, that was long before I could understand what you know what he was writing about. 
Now, did you somewhat follow in your parents' footsteps and, 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 and join the, like the barbershop, I think is what you classify it as. Yeah, I did. Um, started out very young, um, basically from day one and started out kind of innocently, you know, they'd be singing around the house or rehearsing and I'd go downstairs cause I was always underfoot if music was being played in the house and I would start to sing along and, and they're like, okay, well you come on up and give it a try. So yeah, I did it pretty much for a, through up and through early high school. Um, I did it, sang in the front row of a chorus. And then, um, but then I kind of started to, I was getting busier and I was doing other things. I taught skiing and it kept me away. And then I started meeting guys that were playing this other style of music, you know, Led Zeppelin and and uh, and that kind of stuff. And I just kind of really was enamored with it. And uh, the, the clincher was, I met, a, I met a girl I was dating for a very long time and her brother had this, old Fender jazz bass sitting in the corner and an amp and it never seemed to move. And so one day I happened to mention to him, I said, man, that's a really nice instrument. I've always wanted to, can I try it? And he says, Oh, you're interested in learning to play the bass. And I said, I, I would love to. And he's like, well, take it home and see what you think of it. And, you know, for a while and noodle around to see if it's something you like. I brought that thing home and it was done. I was sealed, whether I could play a note or not. I was finally, you know, in my mind, I was in the Beatles. <laughs> it was great. Now, did he tune it for you before you took it home, or did you have to learn how to tune it and everything? I actually had to learn to tune, but um, by that time, my, there was a guitar in the house, an acoustic guitar, and I kind of had noodled with that a little bit, um, and I and had a couple lessons. I kind of learned a C and a G and your basic chords when I was in elementary school, so I kind of had the basis for it, the basics for it. Um, so yeah, I kind of I kind of knew at least that much. You know, it's, obviously it's long before magazines and and certainly the internet. But um, so I kind of had a little bit to go on, but not much. And then I just started playing by ear. You know, the old days, let the record play for ten seconds, back it up, ten more seconds, back it up, and try to try to noodle and figure it out. So playing along with records, basically. Yes. Now, what was your first chance to play with other musicians and not a record? So. In mid-high school, I'm thinking probably 11th or 11th grade or so, I met a couple guys that were quite a bit younger than me, but that were starting a band. And I kind of went towards that direction because I really wasn't that good of a player, but I could sing. And they were looking for a bass player. And I said, well, I don't really know a lot of songs, but if you give me a couple, I'll try to work on them and we'll get together. So it was mid-high school. And um, it, it just like everything else in my life, man, once you try it, it was, I was hooked. Now, you mentioned you, you were also a ski instructor. I was, yes. And even in today, since I know you very well, you do lots of different things. You don't seem to sit still much. I, I don't. My mom and dad were, were very encouraging, uh, and, I, and I'm kind of blessed for that, because they, they always said, try everything and anything you can possibly experience. You, you know, you don't say no. Try it first. It doesn't have, you, know, you don't have to become a professional anything in it, but at least have that experience before you say you don't want to try something, you don't like it, or I don't think I will. And I've just totally lived by that. So yes, I've had a very, very blessed life. So as a kid, besides doing the, and I would imagine going into high school, singing barbershop, that's not your typical high schooler. No, I actually had, at one point, I had a couple of really close friends that also sang, not there, but they, I knew they sang at church and other places. So I tried to get them involved in it. I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun? We'll put together this acapella group of a bunch of kids. And it never quite could get it off the ground. But um, 
yeah, I, I was, I definitely kind of always, you know, marched to my own little drummer, I guess. Yeah. Now, besides skiing, did you do other sports? I did. Um, I was, I played a little bit of basketball, but being the fact I never, I never got to five, eight, that pretty much uh, ended that career. <laughs> but, uh, and I was, I didn't enjoy it as much, but I really liked baseball a lot. I was very good at baseball and, you know, I made the uh, all-star team quite a few years. I was a good catcher and I was a, yeah, I was a mediocre batter, but I was a very, very good catcher. You know, and I was a catcher when I, when I played and I didn't realize, or maybe we had this conversation about this and I have just totally forgotten, but I was also a catcher. That was my favorite position because you were involved in every play. And that's exactly what I was going to say. You're looking at the field, watching what's going on. And in, in, in some ways you're helping to call what's going to happen next. Yep. It was a wonder, great time. So going back to this band that you formed mid high school, how successful was it? How long did it run? What type of music did you end up playing? We were pretty, it, it was kind of interesting. They were kind of into some like really heavy stuff, like, um, or heavier at the time, like, uh, Ronnie James Dio and, and, um, Rainbow and some of those types of bands. And I was, I didn't play, we didn't hear a lot of that around the house. I was more in the stuff that you heard more on the radio. So I was kind of enamored with it. It was kind of a new sound. So we did kind of a lot of that, um, not very danceable, but yet we did get asked to play a few dances at the, like the girls club and the YMCA and stuff like that. Um, not overly successful. It's really hard to find a really strong singer when you're, you know, 14 years old, you know, you, you, everybody at that time, you know, journey was out and everybody wanted to be Steve Perry and, there's not too many Steve Perry's when they're 14. So no, and you could be Steve Perry when you turn 14, and you could be somebody else at 15. That's exactly correct. That's exactly <laughs> right. Or just have a new singer come in every year. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, it's funny in those early days of of music, and I'm sure you know, no matter what style of music you play, you do seem to go through a lot of members. You know, if you're in a band situation, it's, you know, you got a guitar player for six months and then his mom doesn't want you to do it anymore or he wants to go play baseball instead. So you pick up another one. And so it was it's kind of a revolving door anyways. Now, in that band, probably there weren't acoustic guitars for that particular band, I'm assuming. There was not. Yeah. No, it was two two electric guitar players. It was an all electric band. Now, the um, you're still playing that Fender, the bass? I wish I still had that. The the one that my, you know, I eventually had to give the one that was my, my girlfriend's brother's back, which is a, um, he kind of had to pry it out of my hands, but he actually did start playing again. Um, I've had many over the years. I do have one that um, was kind of funny. I, it was given to me. We used to actually use it for like a baseball bat. It was this old inexpensive um, Japanese bass that nobody wanted. And it was given to me right at the very beginning of, when I started really playing and I kind of noodled around with it and I kind of made it work. And then a friend of mine years later said, Hey, I want to learn to play bass. So I gave it to him. Fast forward. I hadn't seen him in many, many years. I'd say fast forward 25 years, maybe maybe a little longer. And I happened to bump into him and we were talking and we started talking about music. And of course he knows what I do and what the success I've had. And he said, Hey, by the way, remember that bass you gave me? And I said, Oh my gosh. Yeah, I do. I said, so did you ever learn to play? He goes, Nope, never touched it. It's under my bed. You want it? Ah. So I, so he returned it to me and it was still in tune. It was still in the same case. It never, he literally had never opened it. So it was kind of a little of a time capsule. It had my very first strap that I had ever owned or that I ever bought that I gave it that was in there. And 
it was kind of fun. It was fun, but I do still have that. So now, what brand is that? Is that a no-name brand that nobody would recognize, or is it one of the ones that uh, from that period that some bass players would know? Yeah, it, it was it was a very uh, nineteen like sixty eight or sixty nine Takai. Oh yeah, T O K A I, right? That's that's correct. That's yeah. correct. Yeah, it was a it, and it's funny. I've, I've since then I've I because it's a little nostalgic. I've completely hot rotted it, redid it, painted it. It looks literally like brand new, and it actually sounds fantastic. So I'm kind of <laughs> glad. I'm kind of glad it found its way back to me. Now, for those people listening who don't know what hot rotting means when you're referring to a musical instrument, what does that mean? Well, the only thing original on it is the wood. Everything else has been changed. So you know, Takai was a very inexpensive um, Japanese brand that they kind of flooded America after the Beatles and the British invasion, and the the, the bones of them was pretty good. But the electronics and all of the hardware, the stuff that comes on an electric instrument, was pretty pretty chintzy. And they're actually now quite collectible in original condition. But I'd already started noodling with it. So, like I said, right now, the only thing that's original on it is the wood. Everything else, the tuners, the pickups, all the electronics, the, there's nothing on it that's original. Now, did you do the work on it, or did you have, like, a, a local guitar shop do it? I did everything except the paint. I do um, I do quite a bit of guitar repair for people. Um, and I, so I was able to do all of the work. The only thing, like I said, I just don't paint. And so I did have somebody else uh, spray the body for me. Now, how did you learn how to work on guitars? Well, when you're touring and you have no money and you have, you know, you, and things break and you got to keep going, um, you learn very quickly on how to, you know, how to make things work. And I was always a tinkerer um, in my younger, you know, when I was er real young, I was into racing motorcycles and snowmobiles and I flew model airplanes. And through all of those different things, you learn a lot about how things work and how to make things work. And so if it, the first thing I did when I started having a guitar was I have to take it apart and figure out how it works. Hmm. And once I did that, it was, it was, it just kind of went from there. And, and then when somebody else in the band's guitar would break or it needed to be set up or something would be wrong with it, they'd give it to me and take me a little while to figure it out. And you start to realize it's really not that difficult once you start to understand how it all works. And uh, so I've kind of been doing it pretty much, you know, since, you know, early eighties. Now, did um, you have either your dad or have a grandparent or a neighbor who was a tinkerer like that that you learned it from, or it was just something that that was you? Oh no, that was uh, that's the way I was raised. I don't ever remember my my grandfather and my father. They were the original MacGyvers. You know, anything <laughs> was had to be done around the house or to a car or something that breaks. Um, they were always, you know, let's fix it and come on, Cap, you can, you know, come on down to the you know basement. We're going to show you how this works. And they would go through it, and that's kind of how I got started. Um, they were, it was great teachers, great mentors. Now, going back to that high school band, how long did that band or that, well, that band with different, you know, personnel moving in and out, how long did that last or not last? The band under that name lasted about a year and a half. And what was but the name? The bone, it was a band called Warning. Oh, pretty cool name. And it was yeah, and it was kind of heavy. It was kind of very heavy band. But out of that band, I met a very young um, guitar player, and it was really interesting. He was this young, very early high school kid with red hair, freckles. His mom had to drive him there, and everybody said, "If you know, if you're going to be in a band, this is the kid you want in a band." And I'm like, "Look at, I'm you know eight. I was like 17, 
I was, I guess I was 16 at the time and he was like 11 or 12. Wow. And I'm like, no, nah, this is a little too young. I just, I don't think he's going to be able to do what I want to do. And then he jumps out of the car. He's got a fender strap under one arm and a, and a fender deluxe reverb under the other arm. And I'm like, wow. Okay. <laughs> and from the first time he played, he was amazing. He was one of these young kids that just got it in our album. He had only turned 17 when he recorded that album. So he was in strut. He went, he, him and I stayed together all the way through. Yep. Now, were there bands between warning and strut? Yeah. Uh, but it kept, a lot of times the name would change because the personnel would change, but the core of the band stayed, um, pretty consistent. There was a period of time when I left to go play with some other, a, another band of much older players, which was great for me because it really taught me a lot. But, um, that band, you know, I, it was kind of the same band from the time it was warning really till it became struck because as members would change and the band would get better and the level of musicianship went up, we'd be like, okay, well, we have to be a new name. So we'd be, we'd be somebody new. And ultimately it went through five or six different incarnations before it actually became strut. And it really only became the name of strut when we got signed. Cause pro up to that point, we were actually called uh, travesty. And in the, the band, the record label said, nah, I'm not feeling travesty. It just doesn't seem to work, you know, for what the kind of stuff you guys are doing. So we sat down and a whole bunch of names got thrown around and uh, Bob Seeger's, um, we were flipping through a magazine about, there was an article in there about Bob Seeger's song called Struttin'. And I just said to him, I said, what about Strut? And they all looked at each other and, and the, our manager from the record company goes, that's pretty cool. Let's see if there's another one of them around anywhere. We looked around and there wasn't. So there it was that night over, you know, it became, it became Strut. And so the people that knew us from playing knew us as our old name, but when a record came out, we had to kind of really, at least for the local people, we had to tell them that, you know, that we had changed the name once again, and this is who we were going to be. Now, how did you become discovered by the record company? I mean, you were playing, prior to that, you were still playing local and regional gigs? We were, and the band was really growing, but it's really kind of kind of funny. Um, so I grew up in a very small mid, uh, western uh, Massachusetts town in the Berkshires, a little tiny town, and it had one decent music store. And on, if I wasn't playing the night before, I was really good friends with the owner and he would want some time off. So he'd say, Hey, on Saturday morning, can you come in until, you know, from like eight to noon, open the store and just hang out here. And I'll, that gives me a morning off. And I used to do that periodically if I wasn't playing. And so one day I was in there and it was very quiet. And this little, little tiny guy came in. He was probably, oh, I don't know, 20 years older than I was. And he had this long kind of rat ponytail, which was kind of big in the early eighties. And he didn't really say much and he didn't really look at much, but we just struck up a conversation. I'm, you know me pretty well. I'll talk with everybody because I like people so much. We started talking and um, he never let on to what he was doing or who he was or anything. Said goodbye. Like five or six months later, I'm walking down the main street of town. I come up to a light to cross at an intersection and this guy walks up alongside of me. And I said, hey, I know you. You're the guy from the music store. And he says, oh, yeah, you're the one that's got that band. And we started talking again. He says, are you still playing in that band? And I said, yeah. He said, do you mind if I come listen to it? And I thought it was a little strange because here's this guy that really didn't have much interest in doing much, but he wanted to come see our band. And our rehearsals tended to be closed. We didn't have people there. But for some reason, I'm like, sure. I gave him the address, figuring he'd never go. I went to rehearsal. And I said, hey, I met this guy. Remember that guy I was telling you about the music store? Yeah. He bumped, I bumped into him on the street. He wants to come listen to us. I said, I hope you don't mind. I gave him your address. 
So we're like, we start practicing. Nobody ever figured he'd show up. Next thing you know, the doorbell rings. In, in uh, where we rehearsed was in the basement of one of the guitar players' house. And his family comes down and says, hey, you got company. And then he comes. So we played, and he didn't really say much. And at the end of listening to us play, he said, he goes, I had a feeling, you know, I was going to see what I was going to see after talking with you. He said, you guys are really great. My name is, and his name was Mark Avnet. And Mark Avnet owned his own record company. But he did a lot of work with a lot of 80s bands of the day, like Striper was one of the bands. And he had a, a studio in L.A. His father lived in Massachusetts, in our little town. It was in ill health. And he had come east to, uh, to kind of be with him through his father's last days. And that's how we met. And the rest is history. So um, chance meeting on the street got us signed. Well, I mean, from that moment where he says, I like what I hear, what is the progression of events and also a timeline to recording an album to be released? I'm going to say it was about 10 months because from the time he met us, um, we had a contract. And of course, our head was spinning because we really didn't, you know, you always hear about all the horror stories in, in music. We'd had some friends that had been quote unquote signed to, to major labels and they were really signed just to kind of uh, shelve them. You know, they weren't good enough to really be to do anything, but they didn't want anybody else to have them. And that was actually quite common in that day. So you get a record contract and then they wouldn't do anything with you. But then you're because you're under contract, you can't go play with anybody else. You can't go anywhere. Oh, gosh. So we were very, very concerned about that. So next thing I would say within a within a, a three weeks time, we had a, re, a contract in hand and we were sitting around a very large table with a bunch of lawyers that we couldn't afford. Um, thanks to our parents to help us out because we, you know, because we didn't want to get in that situation. And it actually turned out to be on the up and up. And um, so we started recording probably. I would say within two and a half to three months. He took some of our songs. Um, actually, most of that album was pretty much what we were playing. There was only a few things that he changed or, or you know, that we worked through. And I would say um, within 10, 10 months to a little less than a year, we had an album ready to go. Now, where did you record the music? Um, he had a, um, a studio, some friends with a studio in our, in our local town that they allowed him to use. Um, so we did most of it there. Um, we did a little bit down in New York City. Um, trying to think. And then, uh, and it, and that was during the time when like CDs were just starting to come out. So we had it mastered. The picture on the album cover, there's a picture of a girl's hip that we paid some model and way too much money to take a picture of basically her hip. Um, the, she was from LA, but we, it was around the time when CDs and uh, were just coming out. Mm-hmm. And he shopped our the um, rough, the rough tracks or the the mastered tracks of our album to some big industry thing that he had gotten invited to. And the grand prize was if you got chosen out of all of this these people, they would issue your album. They would pay to have it mastered for CD and then issue the first run of CDs. So our album actually came out on vinyl, cassette, and we won. So it actually came out on CD. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So. So that's a pretty what? heady experience for, now how, how old was everybody in the band at that point in time? The oldest member was, let's see, I would have been 19. So the oldest member was 22. 
So that's heady stuff for a late teens, early twenties person. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was a great time. It was a great time, but I learned a tremendous amount. I learned what record companies were really were. Um, it's a, it's a mortgage company. Um, you can meet some really great people there that want to help you. And you can meet some people there that all they want is a, you know, a piece of, you know, a piece of you, but it was a, a, a great experience. I would, I would absolutely never, never trade it for anything. I learned so much. Now, what was your playing schedule, your gigging schedule once you were signed? Oh, anywhere and everywhere they could get us. We did, um, you know, to give you an idea, uh, we did three shows in three different States in 24 hours. Wow. Yeah. Driving. We were still driving back. Yep. Yeah. It was, um, they wanted us to get out cause you know, they're, they're, they put, when they start putting money behind you in those days, you know, they, they put money behind you. Um, they kind of expect a return and it was fun though. When you're that age, you got energy to spare and all you want to do is play, you know, and that was a fun lifestyle. And the better the band got, the better the girls got. And it, it kind of fed on it. I mean, it was just, it was just one of those things. And it was just, so to an 18, 19, 20 year old kid that grew up in Western Massachusetts out in the mountains, it was the first taste of, you know, of, of life. And it was the first taste of realizing that, holy cow, we might be able to really do this. You know, up until that point, you know, you always say you're going to make it. But there's always that that thing in the back of your mind that says, you know, I'm going to work it to get it. But, man, it's a long shot. And it was all of a sudden things were opening and doors were opening and we were meeting people. And it was just like it was it was fun. It was really a lot of fun. Now, was your image and when I say image, your I don't want to say costumes, but your attire, your apparel, was that did you perform and were photos taken in the beginning with the what you were wearing when you were? travesty or did the record company say okay we're going to package you this way this is what we're going to put you in they gave us a little bit of that we were fortunate because the, the image in the early 80s was you know spandex and and it, it was kind of a weird thing and none of us really liked it a whole lot i mean we kind of did it but by the time struck came about it, they were that was going away and it was kind of more back to um you know blue jeans and t-shirts and i mean we you know there was stage clothes but it wasn't that real androgynous girl morphing kind of a kind of a look with the spandex that was going away so by the time our album came out we were a little more comfortable in how they they packaged us now hair what was the hair like it was a hair band we all had it and we had a lot of it <laughs> lots to spare and it, and it was a lot browner than it is now so. <laughs> now did you did did you have a hairstylist travel with you or everyone had to learn how to to do their own coif no we uh we took care of it ourselves and we and, and i'm in the early days especially we really get, kept aqua net in business without a doubt we kept the stock <laughs> up so how long were you in strut so we the, i ended up leaving the band in let me think about this 1990 1990 or 91, I, I kind of woke up one day and I loved playing and I loved recording, but the rat race and the lifestyle was very difficult. Um, and, and we were, there's a tremendous amount of pressure. I think when we thought when you make it and you get your record contract, it's like, you know, here comes the gravy train right now. It's, now it gets easy. And, and what I learned very quickly was all of that's when the work really starts. 
And, you know, so our first album had come out and it, I mean, our album hadn't even really even reached the shelves yet across the country. And they're already, okay, let's, let's start talking about album number two, because we started to have radio play. It started to hit in certain markets and in big markets, you know, BCN and in Boston loved it and KNAC in Los Angeles loved it. And they were playing it pretty routinely and we were doing pretty good up in the upper Midwest. And like I said, in, in Europe, it started to really take off. So you're trying to keep up with everything. And of course, they're, well, well, how come you're not writing new songs? And, you know, and I just realized that it wasn't exactly what I thought it would be. I loved the playing and the recording and the creating, but I didn't necessarily like living that 80s uh, lifestyle or what we were expected to live that lifestyle. And um, so after about, it was about 1990, I had started getting, uh, pursuing a different dream and I was, kind of doing them both at the same time. And one day I just woke up and said, I just don't think I can do this anymore. And I went into the band one day and uh, for rehearsals. And I said, I know it's just going to surprise y'all because I'm the one that started the band and, and to get it going, I'm done. I'm walking away. And I did, I walked away and uh, they didn't talk to me for a while, for quite a while after that, because after that, when I left, they couldn't find a person to replace me, and the record company finally dropped them. And so the second album was maybe a half completed, and it never saw the light of day. And uh, and they basically, I ended their careers in, as far as Strut was concerned. So yeah, I was I, I wish that that hadn't happened. Um, but they've all gone on to do other successful things. Unfortunately, I'm friends with all of them again. I think we realized that it was just, you know, things just were what they were. Now you mentioned that you had gotten interested in something else. So you were kind of doing both at the same time. What was that other thing? I got into flying airplanes. I had, uh, my, my dad had, uh, besides music was a huge, uh, model aviation enthusiast. So I flew model airplanes since I was literally, I was born. And the only other thing when I decided professional music wasn't for me, the only other thing I knew how to do was fly an airplane. So I started getting serious about, getting licenses and, you know, and becoming a professional pilot. And, uh, and that's, so once I left, uh, strut, I played in a couple local bands to, you know, to make money, to go to school. And then once I was out and then once I was done with that, I kind of gave up music for a couple of years and went into being a, a full-time pilot, which I still am today. Now, when you say you became a, a full-time pilot, at what level were you at that point in time when you, when I left Strut, I was a private pilot, and I was working on my instrument rating, because um, I just was doing it because I loved, I, I liked flying. But the more I did it, the more I thought that would be more. I could see myself at 60 still flying. I couldn't see myself at 50 being a, you know, a has-been 80s hair metal rock star, so to speak. So. Did you do what local charter flights? What what type of uh, position did yeah, you so have? Once I went to school, I came out of school and uh, I started. Uh, uh, some people I'd gone to school with, parents owned um, a fixed base operator. That would be the place where if you wanted to take flight lessons or if you wanted to charter an airplane at a local airport, that's what that's what that's called. And they owned it, and they were looking for somebody to run their flight school. I had gotten my instrument ratings, and uh, or my instructor ratings, and they were looking for somebody to run the flight school. And so when I came out of, out of flight school, I went into doing that. And uh, that's kind of really where I got, got going. 
Well, in today's world, you are a corporate pilot. Would that be the I correct am. term? How did you transition from being an instructor to then eventually becoming a, a professional corporate pilot? They, um, that same company had, they had um, small charter airplanes. So when we weren't teaching, um, I started flying passengers in uh, small piston twins, which later turned into small jets. Um, and so as my experience level grew, um, I worked, kind of worked my way up into that and then get to a point where somebody else takes over the flight school and you get more involved in that. And then what brought me to the Maryland area 23 years ago was to come down here for a captain's position flying for a company down here. And I've just been here ever since. Now, for those people who are listening who are pilots or they're married to pilots or they have someone in their family, what do you currently fly? Um, I fly a Bombardier Challenger, which is a super midsize, I guess is what we classify it as, but um, uh, corporate jet. So it's two engines. It's kind of, for people that don't really know aviation that much, if you think of what a commuter airline size airplane looks like, it's similar to that, but it's set up very, very differently inside. It's more um, couches and chairs and tables and stuff. So it's not set up like an airline. But in size-wise, it's like a, it's kind of similar to that. Now, you fly out of the Frederick area or where? I'm actually based out of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Now, what are, let's see, what would be an itinerary for you on, say, a Monday through Friday? What would be some of your destinations? Oh, my gosh, I've been all over the world. Um, well, Dallas, Texas, you know, Miami, California. Um, you know, could be someplace in Europe, although this, the company I'm with now doesn't normally do much, um, with the airplanes out of the country. So with this country company tends to stay in the continent, you know, United States, but it's, it'd be, it could be anywhere, you know, our airplane is, you know, it's an international level airplane. So it has the capabilities of going pretty much anywhere. I mean, for a kid who used to love to ride four and a half miles, five miles on my bicycle at the age of 10 or 11 to stand and watch a plane take off or land every hour. You know, that would have been a dream for me. Did you ever consider it as a, gosh, I have a dream job here? For You know, I was a, I was a, a signed rock and roll star. Now I'm a corporate pilot. Or is it just um, something you did? I... I think I, at the time it was just, it was more, it was more matter of fact. It was like, you know, I always, I worked my whole life to be this musician. And then I decided that that wasn't the life. It wasn't exactly what I expected. I didn't feel like I could continue my obligation into that. So it's like, well, what else do I know how to do that I can make a living at? And it was like, well, the only other thing I know how to do is fly an airplane. So I guess that's what I'm going to do. Um, as I said earlier, you know, at the beginning of the podcast, I've been, I've, I've been very blessed. Um, it's been, aviation has been very good to me. Music has been very good to me and aviation has been very good to me. I've been lucky enough to have literally two careers um, kind of simultaneously that have both been, been outstanding. So yeah, sometimes it does hit me that, you know, none of my jobs are, are what I would consider a um, run of the mill mm -hmm. profession and to have success in both of them, um, yeah, blessed is the only word I can use. I've just it's been it's been a great ride. Now, when I first met you, which would be the early two thousands or right around two thousand, you were playing in a duo called the Kevin and Dale Experience. When did you get 
reintroduced to music, but when I met you, you were not playing bass. You were playing six-string guitar and occasionally a 12-string. Yeah, so um, I was out of music, you know, having done it 24-7 for most of, you know, most of my adult life to that point. Once I got my flight ratings and I started working, I got really busy and I wanted to try to focus on that. And music could, could is, for me is always is a very easy distraction. It doesn't take much for me to get completely distracted by music. So I kind of put my stuff under the bed for a couple of years to try to get going. And, but at one point, once flying started to settle in, um, I just had this, this really this desire to play again. But I didn't want to, not to what I was doing before, and I didn't really even want to do that style of music. I was kind of, you know, my parents, again, they were singers, so there was all styles of music in the house, jazz, barbershop, acapella, um, country, everything. And I love all music. So I decided that I wanted to maybe start playing coffee houses. They were starting to become popular again. And I thought, well, that'd be great, but nobody wants to listen to me sing and play my bass. So I started working with the acoustic guitar and um, I started picking up. So it was about a, maybe a two year, maybe a year, not quite two year lapse. And then I started playing again. And I thought that would just be an easy way to, you know, kind of appease my, my desire to play. And, um, but then once just it's my nature, once I started to play, it takes off. And, uh, so I did that for quite a while, but I wasn't a great guitar, I'm a good rhythm guitar player, but I'm not really a, a fantastic lead player. And because I wanted to sing, I need, I, I wanted the comfort of having somebody else there that could play because guitar was never my primary instrument. Um, and so that's when I met Dale and Dale, it just kind of worked. We were, we were quirky and funny and we, you know, played the coffee houses and restaurants and stuff like that. And we kind of had a, you know, kind of this, uh, smothers brothers kind of shtick thing. And it honestly, it became, you know, it did pretty well, it did pretty well. And that's how, when we met, and then I started going into my singer songwriter thing when, cause I was hanging around all y'all and every, and, and that kind of started going, but, um, and I enjoyed that. But once I once I got calls to start playing bass again and I swapped back over, I realized I'll never be the guitar player that I am a bass player. And most people call me for bass. So Well, and if I recall the the way you got back into bass centers around Colorado. It does. It does. And John um, Denver. So it does. My wife is it was a very is still a, a, a big John Denver fan. I liked him. I had a couple of his albums during his heyday, and I, you know, I liked a couple of his hits. Um, but my wife was was a big big fan, and after he passed, um, she was looking for ways to to meet other people that kind of felt the loss that she she felt. And we, by accident, it's a we bumped into some people actually locally that were larger John Denver fans than even my wife was. And they mentioned this gathering um, in October every year out in Aspen, Colorado. So she said she wanted to go. And I said, and, and the, the folks told us, oh, yeah, and bring your guitar because everybody plays in the hotels at night. So I'm like, well, okay, great. So I'm going to bring my guitar and I get to play music. And she gets to do all the John Denver stuff. I met a bunch of, uh, met some guys out there in a couple of years and we became very close friends. And then one year we decided that, you know, everybody, it's all these singer-songwriters, and they all kind of go out with their acoustic guitar, and we kind of play ad hoc. And one year, one of them had the idea, we should put a band together, not tell anybody, and then we'll come out and present it as a, you know, a full arrangement, you know, of, of, the, of his music. 
and we'll just do it as a lark and see what happens. So they're like, well, we need a bass player. And one of the guys called me. He says, well, you play bass. I said, no, actually, I don't. I haven't touched a bass in, by that time, it was probably seven, eight years. And long, you know, long answer to a short question was, I finally did, uh, acquiesced to do it one time. We had a blast. Somebody heard us and said, hey, would you guys do that again if we, if we bring you out to here? Sure. And then somebody else heard us and said, hey, if we bring you up to New England, will you do it up there? Sure. And 17 years later, we've been played, played all over the U.S. and Canada. And it's a full-time, full-time big, uh, big band called Chris Collins and Boulder Canyon. And the, where was the first concert you gave? Aspen, Colorado. And where was the second? Um, it was actually here. It was in, um, uh, I can't remember the name of the church. A, a church brought us out here to do it. Gosh, I can't remember. Isn't that awful? And I live here. And But um, the um, uh, Charlie Abel, who's a good friend of both yours and mine, um, he was at that first Frederick concert, I think, if I recall the story, wasn't he? He was. And, and Charlie and I actually had prior now known each other because Charlie was the airport manager of the Frederick Airport where I used to fly out of when I first moved here. So I already knew Charlie through a different, you know, business relationship and come to find out he's a, he's a mover and a shaker and he loves music and he just fell in love with what we were doing. So he was very instrumental in getting us to play in the early days in this area. Well, in that first concert you did in the Frederick area and for those people who are from outside the United States or outside of the state of Maryland, Frederick, Maryland, I think if I recall, and I don't remember if I was at the first one or not, but there were probably, what, 30-ish people or 18 or 20 people at the first concert? Yeah, the first one was probably, I'm going to say 30 or 35, and then the second show we did was sold out. It was it was crazy, and that's what we found with this band from day one. We don't try to imitate them. It's, we do our version of what we think John's show would, would be like today, mm -hmm. if they were still alive. Um. So we don't go in and try to pretend we're anybody that we're not. We go in as who we are. We do our show. Um, John had a way of telling stories what in, in mind with his, his singing. And we do the same thing. But there are stories, not John's. We tell a little bit about how John wrote songs and stuff as part of that. And um, it's just really so it, it's just really kind of kind of taken off. And it's gotten, um, like I said, it's, it's amazing to go to a town we've never been to before and, and sell out, you know, a thousand seats just to hear you know us play that music and we've done apparently we've done fairly well because we we're, we know the family we know i'm actually friends with quite a few of the people that were in john's band and, and very often they've, they've sat in with us if we're playing somewhere close to where they they are um we've been we've had, you know been very lucky to get to play um with a lot of, of john's ex-bandmates which is which is always an honor that they'll, you know that they'll they'll sit in with us so it's, uh, it's pretty exciting because they're just such wonderful players and such wonderful people. Well, the other thing that I find interesting about the Boulder Canyon Band, Chris was originally from Texas, now he's from Colorado, but the what I call the core group of the band, all but Paul, who's the lead guitar player, are from the Frederick area. That's mostly because that's where I'm from. Um, I'm, the, I'm the, the band director. 
And so when the band first started, the very first year, it was made of comprised of members from all over the United States. Some were good players and, you know, and some, you know, were different levels of players. And as one or two of them would decide, hey, I just don't really want to do it or I don't want to travel to go play. Um, we would come up with, we would need to find people. And I'm always on the lookout. Anytime I go listen to music, no matter, I don't care what style of music it is. I kind of keep a rolling Rolodex in my head of people that I see that it's like, wow, if, you know, in the right situation, I can see doing something with this person, you know, a percussionist or a piano player or a guitar player or a singer. And, you know, I just kind of keep them in the back of my head as to somebody I would really like to work with at some point. So the people from the local area all came because of me, because it's people that I had either played with or had some sort of a, a musical relationship with, or they were people that I saw that I started talking to them about what we were doing that, and asked if they might be interested in, in, in giving it a try and see if it's something they might like. Well, um, Bill, Bill Powell, who is the, the primary piano um, player and synthesizer player, I guess it's the best way to put it, because he has that nice electric piano that does just about anything. Yep. He, he's from this general area. He's down in Montgomery County, but he was he's the organ player and the music director for at least one Catholic church. Mm-hmm. But to give people an idea, I was at Kevin's, there was a Christmas party he had. His parents were up from wherever they were living at the time, Florida, and they invited me and Tommy one M. Wright, and there was this fellow playing the piano, reading the music, and it turns out that Bill Powell eventually was invited into the band, and now he's the primary piano player. Is that correct? That is correct. So you never know correct. where you're going to pick up the, the next member. I met um, the, our, the drummer, is a guy by the name of Mark Nelson. Um, I met him through we, when um, Katrina happened. There was a benefit concert for, uh, for the Katrina victims, and I was asked, Kevin and Dale, the group, was asked to play with a whole bunch of other singer-songwriters to raise money for that for that cause. And there was this big guy with a huge percussion set playing with everybody that would let him sit in. And I have a pretty high voice and this guy could sing tenor over me. And I'm thinking, well, I got to meet this guy. <laughs> and I talked to him after I said, do you do studio work or do you do, you know, other, uh, you know, do you freelance? And he says, Oh, absolutely. Sure. So we swap phone numbers and whatever. And, um, that's how, that's how I, I met him. And he's, he, you know, he's part of the band. Now the the band you're the music director, the right. and most people won't realize that because you stand off to the side and play bass and do background. Um, well, you sing lead once in a while, but you're mostly the back, back one of the background singers. And Chris Collins is the front man. Correct. And he has a, a a unique look about him that is not too different from John Denver himself. But I don't think that was necessarily planned, was it? No, it actually wasn't. It, we, he, I mean now. It, it's probably a little more planned than it was, but in the early days, like I said, we didn't want people to think that we were just trying to be an imitation band. You know, we really wanted to try to have the band stand on the mirror of our how we played. Um, and in the early days, it was you know it wasn't nearly as, as obviously as strong as it is now. Um, some of the players in there had never never really toured. They were you know singer songwriter type stuff, and it took them a while to kind of figure out how to to be in a band. Um, but yeah, so he ended up, so when we first started, he kind of cut his hair short, but he always had long, shaggy blonde hair. And for the most part, as being an adult, he always wear round glasses. I mean, there's pictures of him in the, in the 70s, and he still looks like that. 
And so when we first started playing, we didn't want that. We, and we, he cut his hair a little bit and he tried not to look like that. And when most of the time we would play, people were like, wow, you guys sound really good. He said, but he looks, he should, he, he looks, he should look more like John. I think they'd want that visual to go with what they hear. And so when one of our manage, when we were under management, one of our managers said the same thing. They're like, you know, you probably should do something about that. And Chris is like, okay. So he basically went back to looking like he has always looked and, <laughs> you know, from a distance, from a stage and while he's singing, you know, the mind can fill in the gaps and, you know, he definitely does have a, a resemblance. I actually think Paul, our guitar player looks more like John up close than, than Chris does, but, um, but it works. Well, it's been interesting to watch the progression being someone who's on the outside. And I've seen, I think I've been to each one of your Frederick area. Well, no, I didn't go to that second one um, because I didn't really know about it. But I think I've pretty much seen every every concert you've given in the greater Frederick area, even going to Gettysburg when you did the Christmas show that year. The, But you play basically... Well, not right now because of the whole virus situation, but up, leading up to it, all over the country, and like you said, in Canada. Yeah, it, it, it's full time. I have a sub. A matter of fact, there's 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 three of the musicians that are full time players. Um, Chris being Chris, the, the lead guitar player, and Bill is a full time musician. Um, but we all have subs. Um, but it it goes continuously, you know, around, around the clock when, when COVID isn't around. So, and we've been all over the U S and Canada. Um, I actually played last weekend with them. We were one of our events that was supposedly going to get postponed. They decided to do it. So I actually played in Indiana, um, just earlier this week with them. Um, unfortunately I don't play with them again until maybe December or January, depending on what happens. But, um, yeah, so it, it, it's quite busy in, uh, it, 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 it's really grown from really just, you know, a lark to, being a big thing we're under the same management i don't know if you're familiar with the beatles tribute 1964 yes mm-hmm. there are there are management mates we're on the same management team as is them so now you have a full-time job mark is a fireman bill powell yes. is still involved with churches the yes. um alexander mitchell is a full-time musician and instructor the how do you go about when you have a concert coming up, say you haven't played in two months and you have a concert on Saturday, a Saturday night, how do you go about getting back into form quickly? Because you can't all take two weeks off to rehearse. How do you do it? Well, I think we've been doing it long enough now that we kind of, you know, we really kind of know each other pretty well. Um, you know, unfortunately John isn't writing up any new material, you know, so in, John, and because he had so many hits, you know, people come to a tribute show because they want to hear the song, their favorite song. Right. And most of people's favorite songs are in his earlier part of his career. So, you know, and when you have 10 or 11, 12, maybe even 13 big hits that have to be played every single night, it's really different. You know, it doesn't leave a tremendous amount for the extra stuff, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And so we don't, the show doesn't, the, the, the show changes, but the songs don't change. You still have to do all of those, those songs. So because we've been doing it for so long and the, and the level of musicianship is so high, we're, you know, we're, it's pretty easy now to step back in and, and just kind of 
pick up where you left off, you know, cause like my sub might've been playing with him the last, you know, the last two weeks. And then I might jump right back in and, and tonight for the next, you know, foreseeable future. And then as soon as I get off, he'll pick back up and keep going. So because the machine kind of keeps moving, it, it does, it, there's really up until now, this COVID thing, there really hasn't been a lot of downtime. Well, and I would consider the Boulder Canyon band, even though you're playing an electric bass, um, to be more of an acoustic based, um, because a lot of the lead work is done on acoustic guitar. Alexander plays, you know, a fiddle or a mandolin acoustically. I mean, amplified, of course. The um, Bill Powell, if it's available, it's a grand piano, mic'd, and then he has his electric piano. The And Chris always plays an acoustic guitar, but you also play bass for an electric band. I do. I do. Um, but yeah, to answer your first question, yes, it is definitely... John's music, especially his early stuff, he was a electrified bluegrass band. You know, if you think of his biggest heydays, it was, you know, bass, acoustic guitar, fiddle, mandolin, banjo, um, piano, and and singing. So, um, and so, and that tends to be most of the era that we that that we do our show based around. Um, but I also play locally. I play. I'm the bassist for a band called uh, Special Delivery Band, which is an area classic rock dance party band. Which is fer- does, very does popular in the, the local region. Yes, we, we are we are we're fortunate to have a lot of fans in this area. Yeah. Is it difficult for you to switch back and forth between the John Denver and the, the more classic rock? It no, it, it isn't because I think it's because I grew up that way. You know what I mean? It, it it was never only one style of music. I could be singing, you know, an acapella thing, and then I could be listening to country, and then I might be listening to, you know, jazz, and then I might be listening to, you know, some heavy, you know, heavy metal thing. And because I've always had an ear for all styles of music, I tend to have a way of, I feel that I can pick up a song and I can kind of, my playing will change depending on the style of music I'm playing for. So I don't just... I think some artists, some people, when they play, they just, you know, these are notes. I play the notes because they don't necessarily understand all of the different style that goes with with music. Um, I've always prided myself in really trying to play in uh, in the context of the style of music I'm playing. And because so when I learn a song for the John Denver band, I learn it a specific way and I will play that way. If I learn a song for the dance band, it has a different feel and a different, but I learn it that way. So no, I, I don't, I don't really, doesn't seem, I don't seem to, it seems to like, it's just when I hear that song and I start playing it, it's like that style of playing just comes out with it. Well, and the other thing that you are very good at, um, is arranging. And the reason I say that is you've been in the studio with me before, although I rarely go in. But you've been and heard me many times um, as I performed in the local coffeehouse circuit and so forth. But when we've been into the studio and we'll have, because I don't have that, you know, I can say, yeah, I'd like to have bass in the background or whatever, but I don't hear all those different instrumentations like a producer does. And you seem to have that knack. How did that come about? Is that just, it just happens to be you or is it something that you really, you know, try to do? I think it's just me I, because that's how I listen to music. 
I'm, I, th I think the reason I was never a very good singer songwriter is I'm not really a lyric person. I hate to say, and I think there's two types of people. I think you're either a lyric person or you're an arrangement person. When you listen to music that you love, what do you focus on? Can you tell me what every word is and what the story is or what the story means to you? Or do you, can you tell me what the, you know, what the guitars are doing and what the bass is doing and what the piano is doing and the emotion that that arrangement brings? And I'm a hundred percent an arrangement person. So that's kind of how I hear music. Um, so when I go in and I, and I start to feel how the music is being played or I've done some stuff with your songs, it strikes in me a feeling. And then types of arrangements come and types of, of instrumentation starts to come to me because to, uh, to develop that feeling that it gives me. So I think it's, I think it's just part of kind of what I do. And I'm hoping, I actually want to start doing more of that. I'm, I'm you know, with, starting to have more available time and I really would like to start, you know, maybe doing more, more of that helping, you know, working with people either as a bassist or as, you know, helping them with arrangements or um, giving them ideas and stuff like that. So um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to maybe hoping to develop that a little bit more. Well, that brings up a, a question. And we all know, even people who are not musicians, this is a very difficult time to be a, especially a full-time musician, because there is literally next to no indoor music venues where people can gig. We've been very fortunate in this area, and probably in areas that have wineries and farm breweries, that many of them have large outdoor spaces with gazebos and things like that, where they can have live performances where the people are far enough away they can social distance so there's been a, a great opportunity for some of us to be able to perform but knowing that there's not much going on right now what is your combined flying and music maybe arranging future look like to you how would you like to see it go if covid was no not here oh my gosh i would like to the more time I can spend with, you know, doing music, whether it be helping other people play music or myself playing music is, is what I hope to be doing. Um, as I get old, you know, as I get farther closer to retirement of my, of the flying job, I, I would like to keep continually develop that. Um, it's interesting during this COVID thing, I have a lot of musician friends around the country that when all this happened, they're like, well, I don't really have anything to work for. So I'm just going to go on hiatus. And there's actually a lot of the local bands here. I think, you know, I, I really haven't heard, you know, my friends are like, are you, are you doing anything now? Not really. We're going to wait till things get better before we start rehearsing again and or playing again. That that's, well, you know me, that's not me. <laughs> this is an opportunity I have, you know, to have this much free time to be able to, to vote back to music. This is like, this is the most time I've been able to spend devoted to music than since I was a full-time player, since I was touring. So I'm, I've doubled down. I'm, you know, I'm practicing if I can two or three hours a day, I'm working with other people, um, special delivery. You know, we, we had a meeting at the beginning of this. And once we, we, we set ourselves up so that we could do it safely, we're like, we want to rehearse. We, we, we've, we've developed a whole new, you know, a whole thing and a whole new show, all new music with new people. I'm, I'm coming out loaded for bear. And so, and I'd also like, to, you know, I, I'd like to get back involved a little bit more with the local playing locally. You know, I miss kind of, you know, the singer songwriter, you know, it's often I'll come out and I'll listen, but I actually wouldn't mind trying to get a chance to maybe even play a little bit again. 
So I just see myself trying to develop a little bit, a little bit of all those different avenues. I want to do more, not less. Well, the uh, you have a standing invitation that if and when I go back into the studio, and I was actually going to try to figure out where I had stored that one song that you played bass and did background vocals on, where Kevin Jr. played the congas. Oh my gosh, yes. I would love to have get the tracks to that in, in, in my home studio, and I would love to finish that song for you. Well, and it's a... Uh, you know, and, and Kevin was had been taking drum lessons. This was back when he was in high school, and of course he's an adult now and lives in New York City, has a fantastic job, so he's really grown way out of it. But the I, even though the the percussion track on that probably isn't what it should be, to me it's it just gives me a feeling of like a smile on my face because of the sound of it. One, and I must tell people that I, I don't work by charts; I just play the song. And and Kevin was going to sing background vocals and play the bass and stuff like that. And so he said, well, you got to give me some sort of chart so I know when the song is going to end. So I, I sat down, I sang the song in my head, and I'm writing little slash marks as if that's the the verses or whatever. So I give it to Kevin, and off we go. And he's playing right along, and then all of a sudden he stops, and I'm keeping to sing. We have to cut, cut, cut. What's that? I had forgotten about the intro. I started making the slash marks from when I sing. So I learned the hard way. But that actually came out quite well, I thought. So was, you, What I liked about it was, because I, I asked you what you wanted, and you're like, well, I don't really know. Play what you think. And I said, well, I had this idea for, for that you probably hadn't thought of. And I actually kind of, I think I changed the feel of your song completely. <laughs> and, and I like it. I think it's different because it's not because of the, the theme of the song and what it is. It's a very heavy subject matter yes and it kind of has a uh, somber um melody line so i kind of gave it this revved up kind of a bass line um i would do something a little different with the drums or whatever but i kind of gave it a different feel to it and i was expecting you to go whoa 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 what are you doing and you ended up actually liking it so it you know but it'd be interesting to try to, to finish that song you know and get it done see what you know see where it goes well and we did record that at torchlight studios with our good friend jeff fight who kevin and i both are very close friends with he is Absolutely. recording again and he has a producer now mike conway they just do it bringing very few people in at a time um trying to make sure this social distancing but yes i would like to get back into the studio before i get too old and can't sing anymore can't play and at least get some songs down the ones that i have written since i recorded those live takes up in new york many many years ago but this has been a fantastic time to chat with you kevin i must admit and i must acknowledge to people that i've known you for a, a fair number of years so i know most of the background but even i learned something new today so thank you very much it was it was my pleasure i'm uh, i'm very honored that you asked me to do this well you've been on my list since day one um, I just, my list is too, it has too many names on it. And I kept thinking, okay, who am I going to do next? And I was trying to do it in some sort of a fashion where one would follow the other. But the, um, I didn't have a show for this week because I couldn't really do many things because of some other things that happened. And I thought, you know what? I'll call Kevin. And sure enough, you were very gracious and said you would. So thank you very, very much. 
again, it was it was my pleasure. And you know, having a long list of friends is uh, it's a great thing to have. So, well, I'm going to let you go, and the people who are listening, and then when you listen to the podcast, because you did tell me um, after listening to Tom Colehep admit that he's probably the only one who's listened to every one of the podcast episodes. You told me yesterday on the phone that you also have listened to every one. So thank you very much. I have listened to every one of them. All right. And you're going to listen to this one. It'll be, people don't know when we're actually taping this, but it'll be on tonight, later tonight, probably by seven o'clock or so, unless I get interrupted by a real estate call. So thanks again, Kevin. And hopefully we can get together maybe in about two weeks. I think you said you're going to be back in town. So. Yep, I look I look forward to it. Thank you again, Todd. Have a great day. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. That was Kevin Del Molino, who is part of the uh, Boulder Canyon Band, which is a John Denver tribute type of a band, uh, national. I've seen them many times. And maybe those of you who are listening from Frederick have uh, seen them also at the Weinberg Center, where they usually perform and pretty much sell out. It's a, And it's a very fun concert. And I'm very tickled that they asked me to MC it, and I always have a fun time being backstage with the guys because they're just a whole lot of fun off stage as they are on stage. But we're going to go out with a little bumper music here, and this is music that was put together by a fellow by the name of Jason Shaw, and I forgot what his uh, website address is, but it's royalty-free music, and if you like it, contact me directly, and I can tell you how to pick it up if you're looking for some sort of background music. So we'll listen to some music. Wispy Mob Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by Todd C. Walker at the Wispy Mob Music Studio in Frederick, Maryland, or occasionally on location. All of the music you'll hear on the podcast is played by permission of the performer. If you're enjoying the series, please feel free to share the link. It's wispymopmusic.podbean.com, wispymopmusic.com music.podbean.com or you can find the show on either iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next time.